The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Before we make our way to the Word of God this morning, I'd ask you to pick up your hymn books and turn to number, I think it was number 314, Hell Sovereign Love. And I was studying something else a couple weeks ago, and there was a phrase from this song that popped in my head, and this, this phrase has really been in my mind ever since then. And that phrase is, Almighty love arrest that man. Almighty love arrest that man. But I want to look at the rest of this song. First of all, hell sovereign love. And aren't we glad that God's love is sovereign? It's not conditional in an eternal sense. Hell sovereign love that first began, the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hell matchless free eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Now, the rest of uh, this next language is, is figurative language. Obviously, we know that man is dead in trespasses and in sin and doesn't have the ability, as we're going to see this morning, doesn't have the ability to reject the sovereign work of regeneration on the heart of a dead alien sinner. Someone that's dead doesn't have the ability to reject life. Someone that's in darkness doesn't have the ability to reject light. But he's speaking figuratively here where he says, Against the God that rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, despised his rich abounding grace, too proud to seek a hiding place, and wrapped in thick Egyptian night, and fond of darkness more than light. Madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. And then this next phrase is what has been heavy on my mind these last few weeks. But thus eternal counsel ran, almighty love arrest that man. Almighty love arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. And I think the third verse is very interesting as well. Because after we've been born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, now we have a desire to do something. And you should have a desire to do something. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was blessing Peter to preach there on the day of Pentecost. And they heard him preaching and demonstration of the Spirit and power. And they said, what shall we do? I mean, we need to do something. And he said, repent and be baptized. But as, uh, as you are born again, now all of a sudden you have a compunction. You have that pricking of the Spirit. You have a desire to do something. But it's interesting here in the third verse, it says, Indignant justice stood in view. I feel the weight of my sin. I know that I'm condemned. I feel the weight of justice. But what is man's natural response to try to find a hiding place and a protection? It's to gravitate toward works. It's interesting. He says, what, what's the natural first avenue that I tried to go to to try to make myself righteous before God? To Sinai's fiery mountain. I went to the law. I went to works and said, there's something I've got to do to go to heaven. And then finally, by the end of the, the song, he reaches the end of himself and, and says, solely by grace have I been saved, right? And we're thankful for the message of the gospel that says we've been saved by the sovereign love and grace of of Almighty God. We can't run to the uh, run to the law. We can't run to, to something that we can do or works 
to find any safety and protection and hiding place from God uh, in an eternal sense uh, to try to make ourselves righteous before God. Instead, the purpose of the law, we're told this in Romans chapter 3, the purpose of the law is so that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world will be guilty before God. God gave us the law so that we can look at it and say, well, there is no way that I can live up to the magnitude of God's holiness, right? That's the whole purpose of the law is to say that I can't measure up to make us run to the hiding place of grace. Make us run to the hiding place of God's love. So I'd like to try to consider that this morning. Almighty love arrests that man. The sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And I think that we will be able to clearly see that the, the song that is uh, so popular in other Christian denominations, Jesus is calling softly and tenderly. And He, he wants you to, to, to come unto Him. And, and uh, we, we were in our hotel room uh, this morning. The battery to the television was not working, so we couldn't turn off the television. So we were watching a movie that had been on. And uh, there, there was a very hip Christian pastor that was uh, preaching up there. And he said, how many of you like The Bachelor? How many of you like The Bachelor? And, and uh, no one raised their hand. You don't have to raise your hand this morning either. Which of you uh, even know what The Bachelor is? Hopefully none of you know what The Bachelor is. But uh, essentially this, this gentleman decides to give a rose to people that he's interested in. And essentially, bless his heart, he was saying that Jesus Christ is offering you a rose and he just wants you to take the rose and choose him. Uh, I, I don't want to be unkind, but that is, that's almost irreverent to the sovereign love of Almighty God that chose you when you were dead in trespasses and in sin. Don't, don't dilute the love of God to such a trivial uh, picture, okay? But when we are dead in trespasses and in sin, God is not inviting people to choose Him and trying to make Himself look better to you to attract you to choose Him. Well, when you're dead, we, we know that dead people can't choose anything, right? Dead people can't choose anything. You have to be given life to be able to choose. And we see the sovereign work of God in regeneration in immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. And when man is dead in sin, the dead person doesn't have any ability to reject life being imposed upon them, right? There are some instances when you go into surgery and other instances where you have to sign a consent form. Well, they don't sign consent forms for people that are dead for you to uh, offer life to them, right? I mean, that's just, it's, it's foolish to think about that. It's foolish to think about darkness uh, you who were sometimes darkness, but now are made light in the Lord. That darkness has the ability to reject light being imposed upon it. I brought a message on that recently, I believe on Wednesday night. And we don't see any kind of a struggle and a battle uh, of darkness and light, and then light eventually wins out. What happens with, to darkness when light shows up? Darkness just evaporates, right? It's, it's consumed by light. So it's evident that someone that is in, in dead in sins and in darkness, that life and light just overtake it, right? 
So God's not inviting uh, you to choose him. Instead, he gives a sovereign decree, a commandment, the voice of the Son of God. He gives a sovereign decree to the soul of the dead alien sinner. And I like the depiction of that sovereign decree. I don't think this is the words that he uses per se, but I like the depiction of this where it says, Almighty love, arrest that man. Take him under control, and now he is in servitude to us. So let's go to Galatians chapter 1 to begin this thought. Galatians chapter 1 and in verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now notice, when it pleased God, who first of all separated me from my mother's womb. Now, it's God's sovereign will and purpose and decree that chose the exact circumstances and the timing that the Apostle Paul was born into this world in a natural sense. It wasn't a child's or the, or the Apostle Paul's uh, consent or will or opinion for him to be born to a certain family at a certain time. I, it's evident that the, the child that is born is not in control of his birth, right? Who's in control of his birth? Well, ultimately, God is, right? When it pleased God. And he's saying that separated me from my mother's womb, and then he's comparing that natural birth to the new birth. Do you have any, any control over your natural birth for you to choose who your parents are, for you to, be choo you to choose what family you were born into, for, or especially what we're talking about this morning, for you to choose the timing of your birth? No, God's in control of all of that. So God separated me from my mother's womb in a natural sense, but then in a spiritual sense, in the new birth, he called me by his grace. And what was the, what was the only criteria for when and if he called you by his grace? Well, the beginning of the verse told, told us that, didn't it? When it pleased God, right? When it pleased God is the criteria of when or if you were called by the grace of God. Not by your choice, not by your pleasing, but by the goodwill and pleasure of God. To reveal His Son in me. Now the Apostle Paul had a very unique experience, and we'll come back to his experience later on. And look at that in detail. But many times, the sovereign work of regeneration is not immediately followed by a radical conversion in a public sense. There's always a conviction of sin immediately after that, but many people don't have a, a person like Ananias sent immediately to them. They don't understand some of the things. But another thing that's very unique about the Apostle Paul's experience is not just that he was born again and converted, but he, that he was immediately called to preach in that exact moment. And then as soon as, as he was baptized by Ananias, he immediately went into the streets of Damascus and started preaching that Christ is the Son of God. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but how amazing would it be that the church who, as they were praying uh, for deliverance from persecution, and Saul of Tarsus was right at the top of the list of persecuting them, 
I think at the very bottom of their list would have been the Apostle Paul being converted to be preaching for them. You know, uh, God said, uh, they probably were praying, Lord, protect us from the persecution of this. Uh, Paul writes later on, deliver us from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. And that's how they viewed Paul at a, for a period of time, right? And then there came a time where God arrested him by the power and sovereign work of the Holy Ghost. And then they find out that the guy who was coming to Damascus with letters to haul us into prison, wait a minute, a couple days later he's preaching that Christ is the Son of God down, down in the public market? Whoa, right? What happened? <laughs> what happened? The sovereign work of regeneration happened, right? By the sovereign good will and pleasure of Almighty God. So what was unique about the Apostle Paul's experience is not just that he was regenerated there on the road to Damascus and he was converted, but he was immediately moved to preach publicly. And that's part of what he's talking about here. Not only was the Son revealed in me, but also I was told by Ananias that you are a chosen vessel and you are called to preach right now that I might preach unto him among the heathen. He goes on to defend his apostleship that I didn't just go down to Jerusalem and have the apostles teach me the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Instead, I, I was taught directly by Jesus Christ for a three-year, a mysterious three-year period in Arabia where apparently he was taught directly uh, by, by the Lord. But the point here is, though, that it was not by, and we will see that in Acts chapter 9, it was certainly not by Saul of Tarsus's choice to receive Jesus Christ that he was born again. No, it was the sovereign, overpowering, arresting love right. of Jesus Christ that he could not resist. And no child of God can resist that. Let's go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is past from death unto life. And this is a great example of why you need to be reading the King James Bible to see these tenses that accurately describe the state of a person that believes. A person that believes, that is evidence that they have already been born again, that they have already passed, past tense, from death unto life. And then in verse 25, he gives us an a explanation of how they passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. They that hear shall live. Now does that mean that those that choose to hear are the ones that receive life? Well, how many dead people you know that choose to hear anything, right? Uh, there's not a lot of conversations, at least that the dead people participate in, in the graveyard, <laughs> right? No, dead people don't talk. Dead people don't hear. He says that those that have ears to hear. You want to know who doesn't have ears to hear anymore? Dead people, right? Uh, dead people don't have ears to hear. So what is the criteria that the dead hear and that the dead live? What's the criteria? The choice of God, but primarily here, the voice of the Son of God. The voice of the Son of God that speaks directly to the soul 
of the dead alien sinner. And when that happens, immediately spiritual life comes into the soul. He gives them a new heart, a heart of flesh. He takes away that heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh that can be pricked by the preaching of the gospel. And it's by the voice of the Son of God that God's children are sovereignly and immediately born again by the direct working of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, Jesus Christ being perfectly one with the Holy Spirit by the command and the voice of the Son of God. Okay? Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> and we won't look at the full extent of this chapter uh, as... The Apostle Paul is describing the warfare that we have as, as we are born again. God does, and in the soul, he removes every bit of wickedness and sin from our soul. And it's just amazing to think about the fact and meditate on the fact because it doesn't make sense. As sinful as we are and as many mistakes as we make every day, it's hard to believe, it's hard to reconcile that our soul, as it sits in our body at this moment, is perfect and immediately prepared for the presence of God at the moment that we pass away. You see, because there's going to come a time when we die or if we're alive when Jesus returns the second time, our body is either going to have to be resurrected and glorified or it's going to have to be transfigured and glorified, translated and glorified, okay? So there is something that has to happen to our body before it is fit for the presence of God. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that means that as our soul sits in us right now, that... It is ready and perfectly prepared for the presence of God right now. And boy, that's hard for me to see that, right? Because we have to look down through all of, our, all of our sin to see our soul. And it, it, we just can't see it because the, our eyes are too clouded by all the sinfulness of our body and of our flesh. So we still have a natural body and a natural flesh that still desires to partake of the of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life to characterize this world. But our soul, as it sits inside of us at the moment of regeneration, is perfect. Right. Why? Because Jesus resides there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if Jesus resides in your soul, there's not any room for any wickedness in there anymore, right? There's not any room for it anymore. But even though our soul is perfect as it resides inside of us, we still have a, a nature and our body that still desires to a carnal mind that God does not totally eradicate at the new birth. And we have this conflict. We have this warfare. And that's what he's describing here throughout the, the rest of Romans chapter 7, this warfare that the good that I want to do, I have a, a, an unction to do it. I have a desire to do it, but I fail every day. And then the bad stuff that my, my spirit knows is wrong to do, I, I still engage in that. Oh, wretched man that I am, that warfare that he's engaging in. But what began the warfare? You know, there's not any, there's not any uh, conflict or warfare uh, in the nature and in the soul of an unregenerate person. They're content in their sin. 
They're content in their sin. But, but it's something that changes your soul, that changes uh, your spirit, that creates that warfare. And what creates that warfare is the voice of the Son of God. To warn you again, okay? In Romans chapter 7 here, we're just, forgive me for jumping in. Verse 9. For I was alive without the law once. Now the law he's talking about here is the law that's written in my heart. The law and the commandment that Christ imposed onto my soul at regeneration. I, the only thing, he goes on to say uh, earlier on there, that the only reason that I knew that coveting or lust was wrong was because somebody told me that at synagogue on Sabbath day and I had it written down on a sheet of paper. That's the only thing I, that's the only way I knew that was wrong. But I didn't have this internal conviction of sin and I thought that I was really living. He was living in an unregenerate state, but I thought that I was alive. That's where he says there, I was alive without the law once. I thought that I was living real life, but then when the commandment came, I could see that I was dead that whole time. In a spiritual sense, I was dead that whole time. For I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin wasn't really real to me prior to me being born again because it was just words on a sheet of paper. It was something I knew in a cognitive sense. But now when the commandment, and what was that commandment? It was the voice of the Son of God that born him again. That commandment came and now all of a sudden I thought that I was really living before. But I turned out, I realized I was dead that whole time. But now, sin is real to me. Sin has, has received life because it's not just, I know it's cognitively wrong because it's written on a sheet of paper, on a scroll. I know and feel conviction of sin. And now sin is real because I know I'm breaking the law that God has written in my heart. Okay? I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, which is the voice of the Son of God, Sin revived and I, I died. I used to have confidence in myself. I used to think, isn't that amazing? The contrast of, especially the Apostle Paul, who was dead without the law, but he thought he was righteous. Now all of a sudden, he receives life. Now he views the law in an entirely different sense. And he realizes, not, I have no righteousness in the law, right? Why? Because now all of a sudden it's not just an intellectual reality, now I'm comparing myself with the holiness of God. And you're a debtor to do the whole law. You can't just be circumcised. You can't just have your cherry-picked uh, commandments that you think you do really well, and I'm going to check those boxes. No, you have to be perfect. And he understood that now, now that he'd been born again. And then <laughs> sin came alive to him. Sin revived. And now this confidence that I used to have, I died. <laughs> I've got no hope. I've got no hope anymore. And the commandment, which, or, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. In other words, now I have no confidence of righteousness anymore. And this is essentially how he felt. Um, for three days, with being blind and having no food or drink, that's how he felt for three days until God called Ananias to come and preach to him and to tell him that you are a chosen vessel, that God loves you, and you, you 
just like everyone else, your only hope of righteousness, your only hope of heaven is in the imputed righteousness of Christ and the shed blood and the free and the sovereign grace of Almighty God. And then he was baptized and he felt that answer of a good conscience toward God, right? But something changes when the commandment comes, right? When the voice of the Son of God comes, things change. And don't, don't we see that? You know, regeneration is described um, as a new creation. If you therefore be in Christ, you are a new creature. Well, do you see any, anyone resisting the sovereign voice of God in Genesis 1 in creation? You see any of that? You see darkness saying, you know what, I'm kind of happy being in darkness. I'm just going to resist the light. <laughs> no, God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Do you think that dirt said, you know what, I'm pretty happy being dirt. I don't think that I want to be created into a man for you to breathe life into. I'm, I'm happy being dirt. Thank you for the invitation, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be made a living creature, but I'm happy being dirt, I'll pass. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened when God told that dirt to be formed into a man? Guess what? The dirt obeyed. <laughs> Why? Because the sovereign voice of God cannot be resisted in an eternal sense. Now, God commands us to do things here in this world, and He expects His children to be obedient. That doesn't mean that everything that God commands in this word is going to be perfectly obeyed. But when we're talking about dead-end sins, regeneration, creation, there is no ability to reject or resist the sovereign work of God in regeneration. I mean, it's just foolish to think about those kind of things, isn't it? It's just kind of like uh, in Romans 9 when he's talking about election and the sovereign work of God in choosing Jacob and leaving Esau in his fallen state. He gets on later in that chapter and he said, he said listen, uh, the natural response of man is going to say, is there unrighteousness? That's not fair. That's not fair. How could you choose one and then leave the other one? Where was it? That's not fair. And he says, look, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he goes on to say a little bit later, hath not the potter power over the clay. And that's another uh, just kind of almost foolish thing to even talk about because uh, it's just it's so comical uh, for us to think, other than in like a Disney movie or something, that the, that the clay could tell the potter, you know, I don't really like the way you're making me, you know. Uh, that, that, that clay doesn't have the ability to talk back to the potter. <laughs> Why? Because it's clay and God's the potter, right? It doesn't make any sense that, that the clay has the ability to reject the sovereignty and the will and the purpose of the potter. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign and we are not in the work of regeneration. Okay, so now let's look at a couple examples of this. A couple examples of this. <clears throat> Go to Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to pick up the life of Jacob here. And Jacob, his name, even when he was coming up out of, uh, out of the womb, he caught the heel of his brother Esau, and his name means heel catcher. It means supplanter. And like quite a few other people in Scripture, he lived out his name. <laughs> I think about Nabal. Nabal's name means a fool, and he lived out his name. 
Well, for a period of time, Jacob lived out his name. He was deceitful. He stole his brother's birthright, first of all, for uh, a very inequitable transaction <laughs> for a uh, bowl of stew or something. Uh, and then he conspired with his mother to lie and to deceive, to get the blessing that was not rightfully his. They, what they should have done, uh, similar to, to Abraham, uh, they tried to circumvent the promise of God. Uh, God promised a son. They said, man, God's really slow in giving us a son. Let's go ahead and, and have our own means to meet this outcome. So let's go in into Hagar instead of just waiting patiently. Well, God had already promised in Jacob and Esau that the elder is going to serve the younger. God already promised that. So Rebekah and Jacob did not have to circumvent the promise of God. But they chose to lie and to deceive uh, to do that. So now Esau finds out about it, and Esau says, I'm going to kill my brother. The whole reason we even find Jacob in this state is because now all of his sins are catching up to him. He's lied and he's cheated and he's deceived and now all of a sudden he's having to run away because his brother's going to kill him. Now, we are not the ultimate judge of, uh, of anyone's eternal state and I think uh, certainly the thief on the cross that we're going to consider is, is a great example of that because we never know when it might please God to born someone again. We don't know. God could choose to born them again the last hours of their life just like they did on the thief on the cross. But as we evaluate the life of Jacob in, in my courtroom of justification by works, prior to Genesis 28, there's just not a lot of good stuff. There's just not a lot of positives. There's not a lot to hang my hat on. Not, now, I understand my coat rack isn't, uh, isn't the determining factor on where people will go to heaven or not, but there's just not a lot of good fruit. There's just not a lot to have confidence in at all. So... With my assessment, and you can take that for just what it is, based on my assessment of the before and the after, I believe there is a good chance that Jacob was born again right here in this moment. Now, that's the Lord's business, whether that's true or not. But if that is the case, if you'll bear with me for a moment, there's not any real positive fruit to hang your hat on prior to this moment. And then he, he is... Uh, is by himself on the run to try to keep from being killed and keep your keep your finger there and you can just listen to this if you want to uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and in verse 9 the Lord's portion is his people and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance so sometimes Jacob describes the overall nation of Israel or it's pointing toward the elect and I think Jacob is a great example of the elect as a whole, because we were not in a good place when God saw fit to born us again. But I think this is also speaking specifically of Jacob. It's speaking figuratively of the elect, but I think it's speaking specifically of the man Jacob. And it says he found Jacob in a desert land, right. in a waste howling wilderness, and he led him about and instructed him and kept him as the apple of his eye. So where is Jacob? When he's having this dream, he's in the middle of a waste howling wilderness having to sleep on a rock. And it is surprising, again, we're born again by the voice of the Son of God, that God speaks to him directly right here. Verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, 
I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and Isaac, and the land whereon thou liest. I will give it to thee and to thy seed. And so God reiterates the promise he had given to the two previous generations. He reiterates that to Jacob. And then all of a sudden, things change in Jacob's life after this event, this this. Bethel spot. He said, surely this is the house of the Lord. I'm going to name this place Bethel. The Lord was in this place and I knew it not. And then all of a sudden his actions change after this. But never forget, never forget child of God, even in the mistakes you make in an unregenerate state, God is not mocked. What you reap, that shall you also sow. Well, what you sow, that shall you also reap. I always get that backward. But isn't it interesting that Jacob was lying and deceiving to take advantage of other people. And now he's changed. He's a new man. But what happens to him when he gets in Laban's house? Laban treats him just like Jacob's been treating everybody for years, right? <laughs> he lies and he deceives him. You see? Jacob is having to reap a little bit of what he's sown. So I believe that we can see the sovereign command of God working on Jacob there in that moment, changing his nature, changing his soul, and then his actions follow after that. Now, let's look at one of the most powerful examples of this, uh, the thief on the cross, right? The thief on the cross. Genesis chapter, not Genesis. (laughs) Y'all know that's not in Genesis, right? Luke 23. Luke 23. That was a test. That was a test. It was good to know that y'all didn't know that was in Genesis. In Luke 23, we find an amazing change in the thief on the cross. We find from Matthew's gospel that the thief on the cross and both of the malefactors that were crucified on the right hand and on the left hand. There were people that were blaspheming Jesus Christ. And it says that they cast the same in their teeth, right? And both of them were. Both of them were. And we see that there was a period of time where even... And, and we're not told if the malefactor that was born again is on the right hand or on the left hand, but I think we can all presume it was on the right hand, right? <laughs> I think we can all presume that this malefactor was on the right hand of Jesus Christ. So let me use that language for a minute. The right hand, the malefactor on the right side, but both of them were blaspheming and casting the same in their teeth. And then there comes a time where one of the malefactors has a changed nature and then Jesus promises him that today you will be with him in paradise. Now, as with Jacob, obviously in in the sovereign work of regeneration, the wind blows where it listeth, right? And we can see when a branch moves from one side to the other, from the right to the left, we can see the evidences of the wind that blew And we can say, it appears to me that that wind blew, but I can't say the exact millisecond that that wind hit that branch. I can only look at the effects of that. So, we don't know the exact moment, but we can see some leaves moving, 
right? We, we can see some wind blowing, and we don't know the exact moment. But considering that we are born again by the voice of the Son of God, I believe there's a good possibility, a good possibility that it was by the voice of Jesus Christ in verse 34 when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I believe there's a good chance that that's when the thief on the cross was born again. We also find a centurion, and we don't know anything about the centurion before or after, but he was the one who was in charge of the whole thing. He was in charge of the whole crucifixion. And then after he saw everything that happened, he said, truly this was the Son of God. Now, was he doing that in rebellion to God and disobedience, or was he born again in that moment? Well, we don't necessarily know, but it's possible. It's possible that maybe both the thief on the cross and that centurion were born again by the voice of the Son of God right here. I think in verse 33, it leads right into that, okay? Now, this is just my opinion, and take it for just that. But in verse 33, when they were <clears throat> come to the place that's called Calvary, they were crucified him, uh, they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then right after that, right after it introduces the malefactors, on the right hand and the left, is right then is when it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe there's a good chance that the soul of the thief on the cross was born again by those words of Jesus Christ. We know he was born again by the voice of the Son of God. But I believe there's a good chance he was born again right there in that moment. And then we see the, the beautiful moving of the leaf that we can see that the wind of the Holy Spirit has definitely blown on this thief on the cross, right? Because he goes from blaspheming the Son of God, and we don't know anything else about him beforehand, but he must not have had too good a fruit uh, because he was about to die because of his sins. He wasn't just a, a thief. He wasn't just a pickpocket. He was a malefactor, a violent criminal. And if you mesh together some other gospel accounts, Barabbas led a sedition and was guilty of murder. And he was about to be killed, but he was let go, and Jesus took his spot. And then we have two malefactors that are about to be killed. And I think you can tie those together and find that that thief on the cross was one of a minimum of three people that were arrested in the same sedition. And he was probably a conspirator to the murder of that Barabbas committed. So this wasn't just a pickpocket. This was a bad guy, a bad guy. And this is a great example of why I, I preached recently in Macedonia on the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is why we don't start trying to root up tares is because inevitably if you do that, you're going to damage good wheat because you don't know. You don't know when it might please God to born someone again. It, now, why, why God doesn't born every child of God Again, in the womb of their mother, just like John the Baptist. And I don't have a good answer for that, but when it pleased God. And why did it please God to wait to the end of his life? Well, in this instance, I think one of the main reasons, uh, I don't necessarily think the Lord always does that, but I think one of the reasons that he did it right here is to show his sovereignty and regeneration. Because there's other people that have probably been born again at the end of their life, but the Holy Spirit saw fit to zone in and tell us about this one. And I think God did that for a reason in this particular instance. So the malefactor, and one of the malefactors is unchanged. He's still unrepentant. And he says, 
If you're really the king, save yourself. If thou be the Christ, verse 39, save thyself and us. But the other, now the thief on the cross, has been changed. Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Praise God, right? Praise God for the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit on his heart. Okay, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And the work of God on Saul of Tarsus. And again, there is not any positive fruit of the Spirit to hang our hat on with Saul of Tarsus prior to the Lord appearing to him on the road to Damascus. And to me, it is very evident, especially from other verses that describe him saying the period of time I did this ignorantly and unbelief. He didn't understand what he was doing. And I believe when we mesh all of that together, it's very evident that Saul of Tarsus was born again in this exact moment on the road to Damascus. Okay? One of the reasons I believe why that is so important is because notice as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to earth. Isn't it interesting that this light came down from heaven and he didn't say, well, that's an interesting light and just kind of ignore it. No, that light overpowered him. He fell down to the ground and notice how are men born again? By the voice of the Son of God and I've, I've always appreciated the uh, point that I've heard ministers make for a long time when Jesus was resurrecting Lazarus, a beautiful picture of the new birth. He's dead. He doesn't have the ability. He's stinking, right? He's dead four days. He's stinking. Doesn't have the ability to accept or reject. But it says that uh, he called Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And I've heard ministers say all the time that if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody would have came up out of the grave. And maybe that's what will happen on the last day, right? (laughs) He'll just say, come forth, and then everybody's going to come up. But notice how he called Lazarus individually by name. What does he say to Saul right here? He calls him individually by name twice. Saul, Saul, Why persecutest thou me? And you want to talk about the amazing, immediate work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of somebody? He immediately says, Who art thou, Lord? He didn't say, Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? this, this, Is this an angel? Is this some bright figure uh, that I've never seen before? Who art thou? He immediately confesses that this is my Lord. Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And if you think that man has the ability to reject the sovereign overtures of God at the top of the list of the person who would reject Jesus, you could put Saul of Tarsus at the top of the list. What do you think in his own nature prior to God borning him again right here? What do you think... Because he'd been hearing these Christians talk about it for years, right? If someone told him, you need to confess Jesus as the Son of God, and then he said, and then he would say, even if he was right here in front of me, there's no way I'd confess him. Isn't it interesting 
that Jesus, first of all, he, he knows that this person is my Lord, but I don't even know who you are right now. I don't even know your name, but you are my sovereign master. But then he says, I am Jesus. <laughs> now, Saul of Tarsus, when he found out that was Jesus in his old nature, what do you think he would have done when he found out that was Jesus? You know, I've been rounding up the rest of these, uh, these church people, and I've heard them say a whole bunch that you're the head of the body. I've just been rounding up the rest of these people. I'm going to arrest you. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Almighty love, arrest that man. You're who I've really been looking for. I've been trying to, to, get, to uh, handle the rest of these church people, but I'm going to cut off the head of the church. I'm glad that you're here. Let me, I've got this letter. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Hey, I'm got, he would hold up a letter in front of the sovereign God of this universe. And say, I've got a letter right here that says I can arrest you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? Is Saul of Tarsus, if he wasn't born again by this moment, he would hold up a letter from, some, from the Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem and says, I have the right to take you to prison. <laughs> well, that's not what happened, was it? Almighty love had already arrested Saul. But the point is, though, that when Saul found out who this was, if you have the ability to reject somebody, there is no one that would have rejected Jesus in his old nature more quickly than Saul of Tarsus. But God didn't give him the choice. <laughs> he didn't give him, give him the choice. Why? Because God is sovereign. In regeneration. So now he finds out who Jesus is. And he doesn't say, I, now I can tell it to your face that you're not the Son of God. This shows, by the way, the change, the immediate change, that God works in his children at regeneration. Because he goes from hating the Son of God to denying Jesus and saying there is no way that I would ever believe that he's the Son of God. He confesses that he's his Lord. He finds out it's Jesus. And then he says, Lord, again. He says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? There's always something to do after we've been born again, right? We've been made a new creature. And when you've been made a new creature... Old things have passed away. All things have become new, and your actions should change. But notice how his, his total will has been altered, right? He confesses that Jesus is Lord, but now he is willing to serve this man that he used to tear down and blaspheme and hate, right? And then he says, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And I'll tell you, I, I certainly did not have as, as radical of a conversion as, uh, and regeneration and conversion as the Apostle Paul. I, I don't know when I was born again. I know that I was raised in a good home and always felt a degree of sorriness. I don't know if it was uh, godly sorrow or just, you know, not, not wanting to get whooped but, uh, for, for messing up. Uh, but there, I do distinctly remember having a burden to join the church at age 12, and I finally did at age 15. So I would tend to think that that's probably, at some point in there, uh, is probably when I was born again. Uh, but I didn't have quite as radical of a, of a conversion and, and regeneration as, as the Apostle Paul did, so it's hard for me to relate to that in a sense. But the gravity 
and we don't have time to look at the rest of that, um, the gravity of the weight of sin that the Apostle Paul felt for those three days when he was blind, and he didn't just decide to fast for three days. I believe he was physically so overwhelmed with his sin that if you probably put anything in his mouth, it wouldn't stay down. But, oh, the beautiful message of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, and not just born again, but in guiding the ministry and, and, and showing up to Ananias to say there is a chosen vessel and the, the greatest apostle <clears throat> in the New Testament, and he's just been born again, and he needs to know because he's feeling a conviction of sin that uh, I don't have the weight of consenting to the death of a deacon. I don't have the weight of, of the sins that he had that he was bearing. And God, by the working of his Holy Spirit, worked on Ananias to go and deliver Saul of Tarsus, the message of the gospel, to say, you are a chosen vessel. You are loved by Almighty God, and you have already been arrested. <laughs> You've already been overwhelmed and changed by, and let's not lose sight of this whole thing. God is sovereign, and praise God, He's sovereign. But the reason why He does this is not because He's a, a big, sovereign, uh, scary deity. What was the basis behind all of this? Love, right? Love. Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in sin. He quickest in sin. What was, the, what, was the, what was the basis of God's quickening? For his great love wherewith he loved us, right? That's verse 4 of, the, of Ephesians 2. Let's not lose sight of God's not, praise God, he's not Mount Sinai all the time, uh, where, it, where it's, it's uh, thunderings and lightnings, and if you accidentally too, get too close, God's going to strike you dead. No, praise God, we have Mount Zion that we can approach unto. So God is sovereign, and he's holy, and he's, and he's all justice. But aren't you glad for the sovereign, tender, fatherly love that he portrays to us as well, right? Not just that God's terrifying, but that He's loving. He's a loving Heavenly Father. But I'm glad that we don't have any ability to resist the Lord in regeneration, right? Because in our nature, we're so wicked and vile in our nature. If we had the ability to reject Him, we would. If we weren't dead, we would reject Him. But we have no ability to reject Him because we are dead, and He sovereignly worked to change our nature, to change our soul. And now the effect of that should be to change our life, to change our actions in the future, all because of the sovereign decree of God in regenerating His children according to His own goodwill and pleasure in a time that is good and pleasing to Him. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.